but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve, I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is a special presentation. They're all special presentations. At this point. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a minute. We haven't uh, been with you for about two and a half, almost three weeks. Mm -hmm. And we've been trying to keep very regular during the quarantine. So this is, uh, this is an aberration. Whose fault is that? Mine. Okay. It's, it's fine. You know, we're all, we're all just doing the best we can at the moment. You see... No, you're just trying to have me say something out of pocket on air. <laughs> like, a disclaimer, this episode will have zero tennis on it. This is a strictly pop culture episode. And it's in the vein of a show that I had pitched to you at one point. That mm. maybe we could do something like that. Uh, but we did not have the bandwidth, as it turned out. To do a whole other show. <laughs> so now we're taking the, taking advantage of this gap in the tennis to do something a little bit different. We're going to take you through some trending topics. Uh, Non-COVID related trending topics, which are difficult to find these days. We're going to talk about TV that we've been watching because we've been consuming television voraciously. I can barely remember what we've watched. And finally... We're going to debut our um, advice segment. I have been wanting to do this for so long. I'm so excited that people submitted questions. And we're going to do our best to answer with empathy, with an open mind. And you're doing too much. And right some now. humor. Okay. okay. Mm -hmm. Let's just leave it at that. Okay. The folks will see right. and hear. Show, don't tell. Exactly. That's what my high school English teacher said. As of right now, the segment is entitled Body and Soul. We'll mm. see if it sticks. Sure, the episode is about pop culture, uh, but it's also about stuff that's been part of the quarantainment, shall we say. You know, mm -hmm. pop news that's been in the public consciousness, stuff that folks been talking about, and also a lot of things that people have needed to get through it, essentially. Right. Tyra Banks has had a week of it. Yeah, Tyra is trending again through through no actions of her own, really. People have been circulating videos from both her talk show and America's Next Top Model and sort of poking fun at how completely out-of-pocket Tyra was so frequently. Not, I mean, yes, some are making fun of it, but some are real mad, big mad. Right. And justifiably so. Can I tell you, I have never in my life seen an episode of America's Next Top Model. I have. You may be surprised to hear that, but I have not. Why would folks be surprised? Because I am a gay. And also? Um, because I love mess. Yes, oh, is that it? is it. That is exactly <laughs> it. I'm just not interested in modeling or fashion, really, so I never watched it. Some of the nuggets... There was this segment where the woman who would go on to win the season was confronted by Tyra on air because the cast was sent to the dentist. And this young woman 
decided not to get the gap in her teeth closed. Mm -hmm. And Tyra's like, why would you do that? Do you think that somebody with a a modeling contract should have a gap tooth? (laughs) Doesn't Kate Moss have a gap? Does Madonna have a gap? Like it... It's historically been proven that it does not stop folks from going places. Oh, Lauren Hutton has a very famous... She was, you know, a famous model. Anyway. Besides the point. <laughs> well, kind of kind of the point, but besides yeah, the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She also had multiple segments where the models were dressed in blackface. Mm-hmm. Where we have white women dressing up as Polynesian women. Where we have white women giving a shade of face that... Ariana Grande could only dream of. <laughs> no. <laughs> and it's it's just presented like, oh yeah, we're just showing all different kinds of beauty on this show. Uh-huh. I should say, a lot of people have said we're, it's unfair to put like the 2020 lens on Top Model, but that was very clearly not okay, even at the time. We'll get to that line of thinking. Okay. An explanation. There's another segment where this white lady on the on the panel, on the judging panel, she says to the contestant, you have the intensity to prove your Africanness, and sometimes it's too much. Mm. To which Tyra says nothing to that, and then follows up by saying, after the model has defended herself, that she's being too defensive. There's another... I mean, the hits keep coming. There's another clip of this young white gay woman who says i'm i'm gay i'm proud of it and tyra says i'm not walking the red carpet like i'm black i'm black (laughs) (laughs) it's it's mind mind blasting and i read something too that what makes this even more troublesome is that these models are encouraged to give of themselves in terms of their personal narratives and tell you all about themselves as to what makes them who they are. And obviously for a young gay woman, like, this is who she is. This is kind of a a brave moment for her on TV to putting herself, to be putting herself out there like that at that time. Mm-hmm. And Tyrus <laughs> She's like, stop being so gay. What can we make of all this? Well... I think the first the first thing it shows is that folks have a lot of time on their hands. Yes, and it, I mean, it has been fun for a lot of people, and that's why they're reliving these videos. Of course, there's an element of outrage to it, and some of it is is fucked up, no doubt. The world has changed a lot. Social media was in kind of its infancy when Top Model came out and when Tyra had her talk show. So the discourse around these things are really different. But it's not like PC or however you want to call it, social justice. It's not like it didn't exist at the time. It's just people have many more outlets to share their annoyance with this kind of thing. I don't have anything against Tyra. Like, she participated in a lot of mess on reality TV, but she doesn't seem like an awful person. Do you remember her segments on her TV show where she'd have a black person dress in whiteface to see what it's like to be a white person? Oh, Jesus Christ. Do you remember when she she dressed, she cosplayed as a homeless person? Yes. Uh, She did that whole thing where she fainted in front of the girls on Top Model and then said, that's acting. (laughs) (laughs) The thing about Tyra is I think one of the explicit desires of her television work is to be subversive. That's the spin on it. I think there is a good deal of authentic intention with that. 
But when you have somebody who, I'm not going to say they're uneducated, but they're uneducated in the ways in which these huge issues affect so many different people. It's one thing to present your own perspective on something that you've experienced. It's another thing to then try and while out and just haphazardly try your hand at every kind of social issue mm-hmm. on TV. And then it, it becomes a kind of performative wokeness. That's one of the ways in which she's a trailblazer as well. But, yeah. I mean, like it or not, Tyra is a pioneer of self-presentation in reality television. She's she's one of the first. She's one of the most impactful about how you package yourself as a commodity, playing your, a version of yourself on television. And she's cast herself as the, the self-help guru, the woman who only wants the best for you. She's here to uplift you. Mm-hmm. Everything that she does is an aid of making you your best self. Like you said, I think she has this interest in subversion, in controversy. But recently, she tweeted an apology, an acknowledgement mm-hmm. of, of all those crazy things that she did on her shows. She said, quote, Been seeing the posts about the insensitivity of some past America's Next Top Model moments, and I agree with you. Looking back, those were some really off choices. Appreciate your honest feedback, and I'm sending so much love and virtual hugs. To me, that is a very grown-up response. She's looking back. She's a, a different version of herself 15 years later. The world has changed. And she said, you know what? A lot of that stuff was not cool, and I get it. Mm-hmm. I, we have no idea how sincere it was, but it was a very good public apology as far as those things go. She was also not somebody who did not have power on her show. She had a lot of power as executive producer face, the supermodel, the driving force behind these shows. And I think that's reflected in this statement because she knows she can't pass the book and say, well, I didn't know all that. Right, right. She's like, no, it was my idea. (laughs) I think this discussion exists within a larger discussion that I want to have about cancel culture on the internet. I mentioned that this Tyra issue showed that folks have a lot of time on their hands with folks, a lot of folks being in quarantine, having, like us, a lot more time to watch TV. And what we've seen in the last two months is every day, pretty much on Twitter, there's some celebrity being canceled. And not necessarily canceled in the way that we're accustomed to at this point, but cancellations out of boredom, almost. What you wrote in our notes is, can we save the cancellations for the people who who actually deserve it? So my question is, the who are the people who don't deserve it? I I imagine you put Tyra in that category. TBD, for <laughs> me at this point. Uh-huh. You know, it's a good start for her with that apology, but there there's stuff that's unseemly there. Right. And yes, it's it's absolutely true that a lot of those incidents happened at a totally different time, and it's emblematic of just how far society has come in 15 years that we can look back at some of this stuff. And be so outraged by it. Whereas some of us who actually lived through it at the time wouldn't have batted an eye. Those same people. Right. right. But your original question was who deserves it and who doesn't? What was your question? Well, you said, can we stop canceling people who don't deserve it? Mm -hmm. So who who does and who doesn't deserve it and who decides? One of the important bits, I think, 
in dealing with a cancel storm is if you are caught up in the midst of that, you need to do the apology right. Tyra mm-hmm. did that right here. Yeah. And you also need to know when to hold him, when to fold him, and know when to run. Right. So I would say Kevin Spacey is an example of someone who did everything wrong mm-hmm. on the public relations front. Continues he to. came out smarmy, gross. He even seemed predatory in that weird video that he sent out, right? So that's an example of someone handling this very badly. I think you have to strike early and apologize, even if you don't feel you did something wrong. But I think the bigger discussion here is, is cancel culture a real thing? And what is kind of the burden of proof? Because I feel this is very overstated, right? A lot of people like to say, well, internet outrage culture killed this person's career, and it's unfair, and it's not due process. And first of all, like, Twitter doesn't require due process or a speedy trial with a jury of your peers, right? That's the Constitution. This is not a criminal trial. My my thing is, people who have actually had their careers damaged by so-called cancel culture. Bill Cosby, for example, had dozens, dozens of women come forward over a matter of decades, and that's what it took. The burden of proof is actually very high. We have serial abusers who are still working, still making money. Cancel culture is not as powerful as you think. What's at play here, and I liken it to previous discussions that we've had when we're doing our regularly scheduled tennis programming, when your favorite or somebody you enjoy steps a foot seriously awry, you then have to grapple with what that means and says about you. And there's this myth wrapped up in cancel culture that you can't condemn something that somebody's done and still enjoy their work. And I'm going to contradict myself there because I'm not here listening to R. Kelly or Chris or Brown, Chris Brown right. or even watching the Cosby show or Roseanne anymore. Those are things, some of them, that were kind of painful to give up. Like yeah. Ignition remix, one of my top five favorite songs <laughs> all time. Uh, yeah. But there are folks who cannot do that or don't want to do that. And it's almost like a preemptive strike so that you can go to the club and be able to get down to Ignition and, and maintain that without people looking at you and judging you. Mm-hmm. Right. Am I still going to watch Louie? Am I still going to watch episodes of The Cosby Show that I have on DVD that I love? Um, Am I going to watch Manhattan and Annie Hall, which were at one point some of my favorite movies? And I think everyone has to make a decision if they can separate the artist from the art. And if you can, fine. I've found in most cases that I I have a hard time doing it, especially if there are people who are still alive. Also, you can make that decision and still play Ignition while you're getting ready in private by yourself and nobody has to know about it (laughs) right it's this idea that you should then be able to shout it from the rooftop and not be judged for it that it's like okay what are we doing here like surely you can understand why this is a problem Mm. another reason this topic came up recently is that doja cat's single say so the remix featuring Nicki minaj hit number one on the hot 100 this week in very close competition with savage Megan Thee Stallion featuring Beyonce. It's awesome to have four black women on the top of the Hot 100. All the really this this renaissance of black female rappers finally getting their due. It's cool. However, 
And let me tell you, having a number one hit single on the Billboard Hot 100, that's very difficult to achieve. Not many people have those, mm-hmm. as Miss Minaj can attest to, right. having been featured or soloed at least 1,023 tracks so far in her career. She had 109 songs chart on the Hot 100 before getting a number one. There are a lot of reasons for that. The distribution <laughs> model is very different these days. Back in the 50s and 60s, you actually had to release a physical single to chart on the Hot 100. Mm-hmm. Now you can chart with basically anything, album tracks, whatever. Drake has 65,000 singles on the Hot 100 at any given time. Anyway. I'm making fun of Miss Minaj here, but I do want to credit her because in that moment when she was so expertly roasted and shaded by Mariah Carey on that American Idol panel, she knew what was happening in real time and yes. she showed appreciation Even- for how expert level it was. Mariah was out on the far left side of that panel and Randy Jackson was beside Mariah and then Minaj beside Jackson. Mariah got through like five words and Randy could tell what was coming <laughs> and just started laughing and, and Nikki's face just started smiling even more. Like it was so it was so great. It's one of those pop culture moments that keeps on giving and kudos to her. Legitimately, it is an achievement. So congrats to her. It is. I mean, Miss Onika Mirage is eminently talented. No one is disputing that. But every once in a while, we have to have a little fun. So the song Say So is lit. Like the song is a bop. The thing is, it was co-written and produced by Dr. Luke, Lukas Gottwald, who is the accused... Rapist. ...alleged abuser of Kesha. Mm-hmm. Alleged yeah. rapist. So she didn't win the civil suit. She was forced to continue working on the label with him. Huge international pop stars Lady Gaga and Katy Perry were forced to come in and testify on this thing. It was a nightmare. It was awful. We don't know if Dr. Luke is a rapist, but we choose to believe women because it's very unusual for someone to make up a claim like that. So... Do you blast Say So because you like the song? Or do you abstain because Dr. Luke co-wrote it and produced it? So Variety released an article the other day quoting some people who were named in the music industry, some unnamed sources, and honestly, named anonymous, they were equally disgusting. The comments were like, basically, we're over it. He's, he's so talented. He's so skilled at creating hit records, which he is that we're kind of fine with it. Someone even said, we have put up with worse in this industry, so it's fine. Likely true. Oh, no doubt But true. What is one of the the earliest tenets of life that you learn? Two wrongs don't make a right. (laughs) Right, right, right. It's just, it's amazing how transparent it is now. Because they can say, well, it went to court and nothing, nothing was substantiated. Right? We can continue to say that he has never been convicted in a court of law, which is true. Do you welcome that person back into the fold? The music industry obviously has. And this is a serious problem at the, the record label level. Because how the music industry works is if you're signed to contracts with these companies, especially as a young artist, you have very little control over who works with you. You are at the the mercy of who the record company pairs you with. And uh, you talked about transparency and people not seeming to care. I wonder how much that is true, given that 
Dr. Luke is using a pseudonym, one of his many pseudonyms on this on this record. Yeah. It's not produced by Dr. Luke, it's produced by somebody else. By Tyson Trax. Mm-hmm. And he's also been working with Kim Petrus. So Doja Cat and Kim Petrus were kind of his way back into the mainstream after that whole mess with the trial. And I think going forward, it, it's going to be like nothing ever happened. I will say that Kesha had a group of women rally around her. Taylor Swift um, offered to donate something like a quarter of a million dollars to buy Kesha out of her contract. But it looks like the industry is marching on. It's, you know, canceling Dr. Luke would be like the industry saying, Quincy Jones, we don't need your songwriting. Or Paul McCartney, you're overrated. We got to cancel you. He is such a cash cow. I mean, he wrote Since You've Been Gone. He, he All of these massive hits over the past 15 years. Those other legendary producers don't have that magic touch anymore. Right, but at the time. At the time. But you also have a, a record industry where really their house is on fire. And they probably view Dr. Luke as one of the last few fire extinguishers. Yeah, he can write a song for TikTok. For You know, he knows what works. So the profit motive is clearly winning out in this industry. Where does that leave us with this whole business of cancel culture? <laughs> well, I think the conclusion for me is that cancel culture is very overstated. That it takes an incredible tidal wave to really and truly cancel someone permanently. I also think it's one of the the better examples of how when a terminology is coined on the left to mean something, to describe really bad things that happen to people, a phenomenon, mm. it then becomes co-opted by another group of people to demean it. Right. The bottom line here is if you're tempted to push back against cancel culture, think about some of the biggest examples of folks who could have been canceled so many so many ways along the decades and it took the cresting of the me too movement for some of them to to be taken down and what does that say about us as a society that we are willing to turn a blind eye because to my mind we don't want to grapple with what that says about us mm. now for the culture for the quarantainment, we've experienced this versus phenomenon in the last couple of months. And I believe it started with Swiss Beats and Timbaland. Maybe. Anyway, there's been a bunch of battles mm -hmm. where two artists or songwriters or producers basically play their songs to each other. That's really it, right? You go on Instagram Live or whatever app and you battle based on yeah. this huge catalog of hits. Initially, I wasn't taken by it because I found it to be a bunch of behind-the-scenes men who have contributed a whole lot to the music mm. industry, necessarily and unintentionally taking credit for the work of other people on those records. Like When Janta Austin is beating Neo by dropping We Belong Together at the end, like... Mariah Carey wrote most of that song. That song is nothing without mm. her musical genius. To paraphrase Ms. Minaj, if Mariah Carey spit it, Mariah Carey wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, I was like, I, I'm going to leave that alone. That's not for me. But then the Teddy Riley babyface battle was unmissable. Well, Even if you tried to. Was it the second edition? The well, let's get into that. <laughs> One's tech support. 
came in and fixed everything? I'm told that if you know anything about Teddy Riley, he stays doing the most in his regular oh, life. Oh, okay. okay. So for him to show up on that versus with a 20-piece orchestra and a whole bunch of people in that room breaking quarantine, that was not surprising. <laughs> what was surprising was that in spite of all that, he couldn't get his sound in order. Mm-hmm. And so they had to reschedule. And then when they came back, what we expected to happen happened. Babyface just sat there looking cool, calm, and collected, telling us, this is for the cool in you. And just dropped track after track after track, culminating with a mashup of Count on Me, where the crescendo builds and segues into When You Believe. Mm -hmm. And if that weren't a mic drop, I don't know what was. Yeah, it's just, it's not really a fair fight for Babyface versus anyone. Even if you're facing the one of the architects of New Jack Swing, still, it's Babyface. What would have been a fair fight for him? Quincy Jones? Quincy Jones. And even then, can you really put anybody up against Quincy Jones? Right, like the some of the Motown songwriters. Um, I don't know. Like Jerry Wexler, maybe right, from back in the right. day? There are not many. What I did love about this whole experience was all the celebrities who were in on it were watching these Instagram live feeds and commenting as this was happening in real time and getting their life. I want to know from you, given that you've not really been into this thus far, I watched the Teddy Riley babyface one, and then I also went in and out of the Jill Scott, Erica Badu one, which was a completely different vibe. And can we talk about how when you have two women doing it, like the the vibe is totally different. Mm. Like there's no machismo, there's no I'm gonna shut this down. It's, well, I'm going to play a song. We're going to sit here for four or five hours. I'm going to sip on my drink. Uh, And after you play your song, Jill, can you tell me what you meant when you wrote that? (laughs) But these two women especially, right? Mm -hmm. Like these queens of Neo Soul, super chill. They're having a thought experiment with their music. It was so needed in this this day Mm. and age. So my initial response was, I don't have any because I haven't really engaged in the the battle thing. But I asked but you to prepare. I did. This one this one might be a little obvious, but Otis Redding and Sam Cooke. Oh, do they have to be alive? Yes. Oh no. Yes. No. 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 I want, and they need to be alive. Oh, this. So this is like a fantasy one. This is like a uh, up in heaven one. Okay. Otis Redding versus Sam. This Cook. is like These... somebody listens to our show and they're like, actually, next Sunday at five p.m. Oh, damn. Okay, my other one which I I know you won't really be on board for, is something like Stevie Nicks and Kate Bush. Okay. This would require like an expansion of the ideology of Versus because <laughs> it's thus far, say for I think Ryan Tedder and somebody else, it's been mm. mostly hip hop. Sure. Been the it, no, it's it. definitely been like a black thing. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm appropriating here. <laughs> to, to be clear, I did say Otis and Sam uh-huh. to start. My other choice would be the obvious marvin gay and al green all right also one of them is dead but still why do, this is just a, for okay. fun right and the other the other carol king and joni mitchell you know you know i love my laurel canyon folk goddesses okay as somebody who paid attention to the assignment <laughs> i would love to see usher versus the weekend just because oh, of all the mess <laughs> that friday saturday sunday mm said about Usher and that song Climax. Yes. So I think that the first track should be Usher playing Climax and then Weekend should try to sing it. 
and it would be about a two and a half minute verses. Or the first track would be Usher playing Climax and then cutting the music, singing it live and having We Can Duck Out a minute in. <laughs> I would have Patti LaBelle versus Gladys Knight. Oh, wow. Yeah. Those are two elderly queens who can still sing. Well, at this point, Gladys can sing circles around Patty, which is painful for me to say. The state that Gladys Knight's voice is still in in her 70s is unreal. No disrespect to Patty because like she's she's like 75 years old, you know? Mm. And she put her voice through it in her career. <laughs> no, but Ms. Knight has been touched by either God or some magical honey and tea mix that has preserved that voice. I was trying to come up with somebody for Quincy Jones and I really couldn't. I had Babyface and then I scratched it out and put Nobody versus Quincy Jones. And then I, I'd like to see Alicia Keys and Mary J. Blige. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's think, a pretty good one. I think Alicia's brazen ambition to be a part of anything music related <laughs> would work well in contrast to Mary's authenticity or perceived authenticity. Mm. Yeah, I actually would combine Alicia with Usher too. I would like to see that. Mm-hmm. Next on our agenda, you have here written, what is going on with Karens and Chads? What is going on? I apologize because we do have a good friend named Chad. Is Chad the name for the male Karen? Yes. It is? Of a certain age. Oh. Because now it's become classified. There's there's a nomenclature. I assumed it would have been like a Brian or a Matt or a Jeff. Oh, J- Jeff is a good one. I'm I'm sure that works. But Chad has been accepted. Karen is, as you know, the symbol of weaponized white womanhood. What is happening with the Karens and Chads across America during quarantine? Recently, we saw a video of a Karen who was actually named Kathy. She did say her full name on the video, who was literally pushed and dragged out screaming from a red lobster in York, Pennsylvania. Those of you who've worked in food service know that Mother's Day is already... An incredible nightmare. And then you factor in reopening just ahead of a Mother's Day with a reduced staff, with a reduced capacity, Mm -hmm. with all these Karens chomping at the bit. Who refuse to wear masks. They refuse to wear masks because their freedom and liberty is being impinged upon. And how dare they not get their Cheddar Bay biscuits? How dare they? Mind you, those can be purchased in store, in a box, and you can make them at home. (laughs) In Costco, wherever. It's funny because, you know, both you and I have worked in restaurants. We know what working Mother's Day is like. It's horrible. I can't imagine working in this environment when states have decided to, to send everybody back as if everything is normal. Like, we've been in quarantine for long enough. We're tired of the virus, so we're just going to go back to normal. It's crazy. It's terrifying. I don't want to spend too much time trying to figure out the psychology of why Karens and Chads completely snap. absolutely not. I will say that I've seen a lot of really interesting stuff about how this notion of freedom that a lot of Americans have is, is juvenile. This idea that I deserve freedom free of responsibility, free of obligation. So my, my right to exercise my own personal freedoms has no limit and it has really no responsibility to everyone else. You're talking about them and and their belief or understanding in what freedom is for them as if they understand 
the definition of the word freedom, as if they have the intellectual capacity to... Well, well, they say it a lot. No, but what I'm saying is it's devoid of any critical thought. In America, it's wrapped up in this idea of freedom from foreigners. Sure, but... And you have the, the military complex, you have all these wars that America has fought overseas to allegedly keep Karens and Chad safe at home. And so it is their right because their kinfolk have fought for this right, for them to do whatever they want. So this is something that The Good Place took on. This was from the philosopher Thomas Scanlon. What do we owe to each other? We live in a society. We have our own rights and freedoms. What do we owe to each other? What are kind of the limits of our freedom? What responsibility do we have to protect other people or at least spare them from the terrible things that we do? To, to what extent does me going out and living my life however I want infringe on the freedom of other people? I owe it to other people to wear a mask when I leave the house. Mm. And I don't think twice about that. I'm not out here doing thought experiments on Twitter being like, well, is it actually really necessary? In a political health climate where we know so little still about the COVID-19 virus, why is that a chance that I'm willing to take as opposed to wanting to proceed with an abundance, an overabundance of caution? Right. I mean, when, when we still can't even prove that people who have had it have developed immunity, we don't know that for certain, right? If it's not a hardship, why not? Like, and I think a lot of it is, well, for a lot of people, this is the first time that they've felt completely out of control and have felt their personal freedoms really infringed, right? So this is like a reaction to that. I'm not saying that that's okay, but it makes sense that people will want to like wrest control where they can. It's also a reaction to brown people, people of color, poor people of color, because a lot of these Karens and Chads are poor themselves. Yeah. But they will always see themselves as better than even the richest black person. And so this idea of freedom and believing that you're entitled to all these things, they believe that they're entitled to all these things and the other people are not. And necessarily because they can't do these things that they want to now, it's the fault of the other. Right. And so they feel emboldened to treat people who they deem as lesser than exactly that way. I mean, it's gutter trash behavior. No. It's it's beyond my bandwidth at this point to to sit here and watch people acting like that, going out to supermarkets and brandishing weapons because you're you've well, waited too long. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. Showing up to protesters and and bringing your guns to try and dissuade them, protesting with weapons openly in state legislature. Like, it's it's crazy, the things that these white people feel they can get away with and indeed get away with. Yeah. That the people that they feel are taking things away from them cannot. I'd like to move on to the TV section of the episode. Mm-hmm. As we said earlier, we've been watching a ton of Netflix and streaming, whatever, network TV and I feel bad almost for the creators that we've watched so much that I almost forget what we've watched, right? Like they pour their heart and soul and hard work into this stuff and I have to rack my brain to remember what we actually consumed. I have to believe that a lot of TV production, the release of these shows was ramped up because this was going on. It yeah. had to have been because... I think some things were dropped early to take advantage of this. It had to have been because 
I remember thinking, wow, I, I, what am I going to watch? You were here telling me, well, let's save these two episodes before we finish it, because what are we going to watch the rest of yeah. the week? And then you blink, and then all of a sudden we have a list of two pages worth of shows that we need to catch up on or start watching. Mm. And a lot of it is good. A lot of stuff we didn't think we would like, and we did. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we watched the Netflix series, uh, limited series, Hollywood, mm-hmm. brought to you by Ryan Murphy, and it got pretty terrible reviews. The tr- like I when I say, saw, I'd say it's settled on middling. Okay, when I saw the trailer, I was super excited because there were, I mean, Patty Lapone, Darren Chris, all these people who I really liked, who I wanted to see. It was old Hollywood. It just looked like fun, and you know, it was hit and miss. It was it was extremely entertaining. You can't take that away. It was kind of a thought experiment um, on what would have happened if Hollywood had been open to people of different races and sexualities in the 1940s. So there was uh, many, many liberties taken. So many. Yes, I feel like we landed somewhere even more forward thinking than we are now. Yes. (laughs) So it was weird. Which is where it failed, kind of, because it's hard. I told you while we were watching it, when you had misgivings about what was going on. And I said, listen, like, what is one of the first things that you learn when you're studying literature? You have to practice a willing suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. Sure, which I'm fine And with. you are a former English major in college. It was very surprising for me to have to explain that to you. <laughs> <laughs> but there's only so much you can suspend yeah. when this stuff wouldn't even be plausible in today's society when we're still dealing with so much mess. But if you allowed yourself to get wrapped up in it and forget all that stuff, there were moments that were enjoyable. If you could forget the heavy-handedness of some of the things. For example, when this all ends with the majority of the cast, sorry folks, there's going to be spoilers in this segment. Mm. It just is the way it is. When the show ends with the majority of the cast getting Oscars and they depict the whole Oscar ceremony, that was... That was just too, too much. Yes. And that's where if you're looking at this thing from a critical eye and you can't help but look at it from a critical perspective, it depletes the the end product. It diminishes Mm. it. However, it was very fun. It was entertaining. I definitely don't regret watching it. No. The one thing I do wish is that the casting would have been better. There were a couple of casting choices that didn't work for me. For example, the actress who played Camille, while breathtakingly gorgeous, just didn't work for me. I didn't think she was believable at all as a leading lady. And maybe that's a, a, a critique that I can have of myself that I couldn't envision a young black woman being a leading lady back then. Maybe that's the point. I doubt it. I just don't think she was up to, up to snuff for the part. Mm. I also, as much as I enjoy him, did not like Darren Chris in this role at all. At yeah, all. I don't think it worked. Did not work at all. Some things that did work, Joe Mantello is an incredible actor. Uh, Dylan McDermott. Stellar. The young man who played Rock Hudson. Jeremy Pope as Archie, the screenwriter. Loved him on the show. Mm-hmm. And because we have named no women. <laughs> Holland Taylor. Holland Taylor and, and Patti LuPone. A treat. We see Patti LuPone pretty regularly. Yeah, yeah. But to see Holland Taylor in this setting give such an incredible performance, I was every which way here for it. Less so Jim Parsons. 
Yeah, I can't say that I get Jim Parsons. I kind of wish he would just take his his Big Bang money and go home. And hang out with, like, Taylor Swift or whoever he is. Jeannie Bouchard, I don't, yeah. I, oh, I right. don't know. Oh, right. Oh, my God. See, there is tennis on this episode. <laughs> the series We're Here on HBO follows three queens from RuPaul's Drag Race. Bob the Drag Queen, who won, Eureka O'Hara, and Shangela. And they go to different small communities across the United States, very, very similar to Queer Eye. And they get three people to do drag performances with them. Or three sets of people. Right. So each, basically, each queen has like a project and they get these people to do drag performances in small towns that, you know, maybe haven't seen them or are not as accepting. And both the queens and the people they're working with learn something meaningful about Mm -hmm. life and it's stretching the idea of what drag is and it's something i had to confront at the start of this show watching it and i was like why are there so many straight people on this show (laughs) yeah but it is it is often very touching it can be a really emotional watch fun and i want more opportunities to watch bob the drag queen because i think he is hilarious i was hesitant at the start of watching the show because of eureka haven't always been a fan of Eureka. And by that, I mean, I have never been a fan of Eureka. (laughs) But she works in the setting. They double down, they triple down on the empathy on this show, which I think is a huge credit to the producers and whoever is involved or who conceived of this show, because it could so easily become ham-fisted and overwrought and too schmaltzy Mm. in the way that, say... RuPaul's Netflix show, scripted show, oh, yeah. became, yeah. it moved beyond the camp that it wanted to be into something that just wasn't really very good. Mm. And so this show is is using drag as a tool to connect people. And that's not something I thought I would ever say in an unironic way. Right. And, and right. enjoy and be happy to just sit there and have it wash over me. But it to date, I think we've watched three episodes, and I look forward to it. There's another one tonight, I think, Friday night. We blew through normal people. I think it's on Hulu. It's based on a novel by an Irish author. Follows two young Irish people. Sally. Uh, Sally Rooney. Mm-hmm. Follows Marianne and Connell from Sligo. And, God, this series snuck up on me. I have not read the book, but... I, I went in not knowing what to expect and found a sometimes funny, sometimes depressing series about depression, mental health. It's coming of age, but sort of what what we give to each other and what we teach each other through these early relationships in our lives. And wow, I God, it just, it really snuck up on me. A lot of these coming of age tales end after high school. It doesn't always push on into the transition, which I thought was different and unique about this show and this book, which I have not read. You get what they went through high school, and then you see how they transition into adulthood and how what you think of yourself and what you think of each other gets upended through that transition and how you become different people and that that who you are is not static at that time in your life. And you see how that process and that transformation affects your relationship with each other. Mm-hmm. Like as you change, are you changing together in the same direction? It happens throughout the course of any relationship. Like we've been together 13 years. 
to date, we have evolved and changed together or at a, a rate or in directions that haven't been deleterious to us staying right. together. Like you know, it's, like, it's manageable. Yeah. We're not the same, but we've changed sort of trending toward the same direction, luckily. You're, you make decisions to put up with people's shit. Yeah. At what point does the change become too much? Mm. You know, what? at what point do you diverge too much? That could still happen. Right, right. I enjoyed the fact that the pace of this show was so slow. And it was able to be so slow and still so effective because the source material and the writing and the acting, especially, was so good. When a show paces itself like normal people did, it, it runs the risk of being too self-important, too pretentious. Whereas this show took its time in, in bringing to light all these relatable emotions and experiences that folks folks share as a collective through this this life experience that we've all been through. Mm-hmm. Maybe not exactly the way they did, but we can recognize the ways in which you think differently about yourself at 18 as the top gun in high school, as, as you do as a small fish in the sea in college. It was focused on these two young actors who I had never seen before, and the performances felt very natural. I didn't see the wheels turning. I didn't see the the craft. You know, that kind of acting has its place, but this was very naturalistic. It felt like you were watching real people interact with each other, and it's a, it's a skill. And maybe it's something a lot of actors lose as they become more successful. Little Fires Everywhere is uh, an adaptation where I actually did read the source material, and the book was fine. I mean, I didn't, I didn't absolutely love it. So actually, was it worth it? keeping me waiting for well over a month, two months probably, <laughs> yeah. before we watched it. I like it. to read the book first. It's just a preference. And so this show came out and everybody's talking about it. And I, I'm like, well, we have nothing to watch. Let's watch it. And he goes, it's like, I'm currently reading the book. So just wait. It's like, well, I just purchased the book on the tablet and I'm reading it at a snail's pace. And you will just <laughs> have to true. wait. It was the first ebook that I have ever bought. It was on sale for $3. And the rest of the ebooks I'm getting through the Toronto Public Library because I'm cheap. But yeah, the book was fine. But I actually preferred the series. I felt like it. I understood the characters a little bit better in the series. I don't like that it was framed as more of like a a thriller, like a mystery. Because again, there are spoilers here. But in the novel, there's no mystery as far as who set the fires. That's revealed in the very first chapter. The mystery is, you know, kind of the backstory of some of the main characters. Reese Witherspoon and Carrie Washington were both executive producers on the show. Reese has recently cast herself in in a few projects to varying success, right? Like I think you in, did not enjoy her in morning. In show. the morning show, I feel that she was really, really not right for the part. And I, I mean, I'm saying this as someone who loves Laura Jean Witherspoon. That's her name? That's her real name. I did not know. I love Reese. For a lot of people, she is like the greatest white woman. You know, the (laughs) the acceptable white woman. (laughs) That's a a big difference between those two things. Being the greatest white woman and the most acceptable white woman. (laughs) No, but so I love Reese. Um, I love her in Big Little Lies. I didn't love her in Morning Show. This is in Little Fires Everywhere. This is a, a role that works for her. This this type, as she's gone into her middle age, the Queen of Karens, it works. 
as long as there is soul behind it. She does a really good job at it. If you could imagine her character in Election growing up to be a disaffected Karen. No, because Tracy Flick was hard scrabble. Like, she was scrappy. You know, I, I get that more from her um, Big Little Lies character. Less so, this character was someone who was born into privilege and order, and and she knew how her life would look. Mm-hmm. Tracy Flick was a, a really a different person. What I'm saying, what works for Reese in a lot of these roles is that you can see traces of who we knew her as a young actress yeah. in those yeah. roles if they were to have grown up facing certain circumstances. There's a certain continuity mm. with her roles that lends herself to now be the the ultimate want-to-do-well-liberal-identifying actual Karen. Yeah. This is a little bit different, right? Because she she's playing sort of a liberal, a woman who believes herself to be progressive, but cannot stop getting in other people's business. Who has and, never missed an opportunity to microaggress. Exactly. Never. So I thought by making the characters Mia in Pearl Black, they weren't in the book, by the way. And I had to, when I saw the series and who was cast, I was like, wait a second, was I not paying attention when I read the book? But no, they were not black in the book. They are in the series. Obviously, that gives a completely different dimension to the show. Because Mia does end up working uh, in domestic labor mm-hmm. in uh, Elena's house. So, I, th- I mean, that was a little bit easy, right? To cast like a white and a black woman in these roles. But it did add a, a different set of motivations that weren't there in the novel. We are not experts into the decision making that goes <laughs> into adaptations. Right, right. And what becomes more palatable to audiences and, and makes it better to sell. I will say that I appreciated that decision because I was able to get a different performance from Kerry Washington. Yes. Outside of Scandal, she's done other things. She did the Anita Bryant HBO thing, right? Which I have not seen. I had no Mm. desire to live through that. Confirmation. Yeah, confirmation. Well, I guess I did technically live through it the first time, but... We were way too young. Way too young. I have no desire to see that dramatized. I'm at this point in my life where there's certain real life events that i don't care how good it is it just does not interest me to see that on a Mm. screen such as chernobyl like not gonna watch it oh you're missing out i i believe you but i don't need that in my life okay but the point here is that carrie washington understated for the most part (laughs) deliberate yes in her understatement and because the character demanded it mm -hmm. it's almost as if Carrie has uncontrollable twitches in her face that she can't control when she's acting. Right. Like the overacting is not physical, it's facial. And that became a bit much by the end of Scandal. And you wanted to see this obviously gifted actress do something else and branch out. It was almost as if, despite the the obvious paycheck she was getting from Scandal, that she was being held hostage a little bit by this role. Oh, yeah. I mean, Scandal was bad. (laughs) I have always been a Carrie Washington advocate I'm a believer in Carrie's talent, but Scandal, I mean, got intolerable. Real Housewives of Atlanta, one of our faves. We've been watching it for, what, 11, 12 seasons, however long it's been on? From the beginning. From the beginning, from Deshaun Snow's mansion. They did the first ever Zoom reunion, virtual reunion. The reunions are typically my least favorite episodes of the season. It 
I don't, you know, I'm not a fan of Andy Cohen personally, and I just don't like when they read questions from the audience mm-hmm. that are rude and feisty. I mean, you and, have this this white gay man cosplaying in the midst of these black women. Yeah, so I mean, what does that say about me watching the show? That's what but, I'm about to get to. You, you we're on the same wavelength here. <laughs> we there is there is stuff to problematize about us enjoying it so much as well. Sure. But that was, man, that was something else. And that was just part one. One uh, image that will, I believe, live in infamy is the image of Lenithia Leake's laptop computer folded down. And you can see the keyboard because she has left the reunion. And, you know, as soon as she left, Andy Cohen called her and said, listen, Miss Leakes, you're not getting paid unless you don't come back. <laughs> unless you come back. Nene Leakes has gone so far past the point of bearable on this show and she's switched back and forth between being a team player and putting a a proper stride forward and just regressing to this infantile trumpian bullshit whenever she's pressed on anything it, it yeah it's, I, I don't know what happened but like she was fun you at know, one point i don't know her reads aren't they're not reads anymore it's just mean and it's not super clever. When she gestured towards spitting at Kenya, I was like, what? what is this? This this isn't season two, Nini. The show has devolved into a caricature of a caricature. Mm-hmm. To the point where you're sitting here describing what are the, the, the more acceptable ways to be a caricature, essentially. Okay, sure. <laughs> but at the same time, reality TV thrives on drama and mess. But it also needs authenticity. And somewhere along the line, Nini lost all authenticity that she could possibly have had. And if you're going to exist in that realm of not giving a fuck, of not caring about how you're perceived, doing everything to undercut your authenticity, then you best bring your sharpest knife to the shade room. Mm -hmm. Because you can be out here cutting people down and being real mean and bitchy and shady. But if it's smart and if there's truth to it, then it works. And Nini no longer exists in that sphere. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so I'm going to disagree with you a little bit, but I think we're in the same direction. It doesn't require authenticity, but it requires intention. So someone like Tiffany Pollard, New York, she was someone who created this reality show persona for herself and performed it so incredibly well that she became the prototype, right? And someone like Kenya Moore, who you observed during the reunion, always comes prepared. Like she's done her homework. She knows the reads that she's going to deploy. So it's not necessarily authentic, but it is very intentional. Like she knows she knows the character that she needs to perform in order to either be entertaining or effective or whatever. I think that Nini has let in a lot of cases, has let her her feelings get in the way and has really acted out. Hmm. No, we are talking about the same thing. Yeah. When I say authentic in talking about reality show, I don't mean that they're being their real selves. Right. I mean that they're being true to the the character that they've chosen to perform mm. and the, the, the side of themselves that they want to show. Nini has vacillated between too many people that she's trying yeah. to present herself as for that authentic character to work and be taken seriously anymore 
Next on the docket is the cultural phenomenon that is Insecure. Insecure is back for season four, and it is one of the most popular on social media. Actually, I like the season. I like it better than last season. I think there's a, a clear, like, A plot. Like, there's a clear mm-hmm. main story that we're following through the season, right? From the jump, it was clear that this season is, go- is going to be about the breakdown of a foundation friendship. Yeah. Of Molly and Issa's relationship, which, you know, when a friendship fractures, when you can see the, the fraying start to happen, it is awkward and it's sad and a lot of it feels hostile and petty. But I think that's true to life. In certain circumstances, you have friendships that fall by the wayside just because you're too busy, you can't keep up, you're living in different states, different countries, you're experiencing different life things, you know, one's having a family, one's not, different goals, priorities, that stuff, it happens all the time. This is a little bit different in that these are people living in the same city, the same circle of friends, and still parading around playing the part of still being friends, but not being honest with each other and especially with themselves. That's where this one becomes a little bit difficult to watch because you see these characters making poor choices in how they communicate with each other. And you know that the point of it is to show the breakdown of a friendship and how it happens. And it becomes difficult to watch because you, you, you've, you recognize it. Right. Well, and it's frustrating because you can say, well, this would be so much better if you two just communicated, if you just sat down and talked about this. But it's easy for us to say as viewers. I'm not. But that's also the point. Right? Well, right. Right. The that's relationship is breaking down because at the core of it, you don't want to put the effort in anymore. Exactly. You're, you're choosing not to see where the other person is coming from. You're performing what you think the relationship has been or what you think it is, not where it could be or what where it needs to be to continue right. as you change parallel to each other. So I'm personally not interested in who's team Molly, who's team Issa, because I think they both have been kind of nasty to each other and have failed each other in different ways. Issa is the one experiencing the, the bigger transformation. Her professional life is undergoing this metamorphosis the block party was a success and molly uh, maybe was not as supportive as she should have been so what you're saying is you are team isa no just based on this last episode see i am team isa (laughs) because molly has been doing the most the entire arc of this show i've never felt that she really truly had isa's back i felt like for a long stretch of the show isa was giving emotional and intellectual honesty to their relationship when Molly wasn't. And I think Molly was unable to do that because of the lies that she's told herself and how she's had to exist in this other world that's uncomfortable for for black people, black women, unfortunately still to this day. You have to code switch to an Mm. extent. And I think that's kind of like bled into her relationship with Issa. And along the way, Issa has been there for her in her triumphs, you know, as this this struggling professional. Yeah, I mean, Issa's personal and professional life, well, more so personal life, have been a mess for like the three and a half seasons. The like for the professional whole as well. Right, but she had a job. She did, you know, but like it she was had a not job, something like, that 
You, it wasn't something she was passionate about. You accept the mundane when you're being paid. She yeah. wasn't being paid. Yeah, yeah. So like, let's be clear, <laughs> nothing was really going on for Issa for a right, while. And right. so now she has this this opportunity where the creative and the professional gels. Right, and she created something mm-hmm. from the ground up. And Molly is like, oh, you know, you're friends with Condola. And why are you talking to Lawrence? And you don't have time for me. And it just, it felt very childish. The whole interaction. Issa was doing the same thing. Yes. As well. But I give Issa a pass to a point because as a friend, you should be able to understand what's going on in this moment. You've had your successes. This is Issa's moment. Put that to the side for now and put your shit to the side for now and your own feelings to the side for now and let this play out. You don't want to have your personal dealings the troubles in your friendship affect Issa professionally if you are that close you should be able to foresee how that could derail her professionally and even if you don't get along with somebody anymore even if you've fallen out of a relationship the fact that you've spent so many years building this trust and rapport and love for somebody means that you still should at the end of the day want the best for them unless Mm. they've really done you dirty which I don't think is what this is Right. I think the writing has been really good this season because it shows that grown people in their 20s and 30s can actually behave in a really childish manner toward each other because they've probably known each other forever and know what irks the other person. Mm -hmm. I'm enjoying it. We're halfway through. And it's caused a lot of conversation on on social media because Mm -hmm. it's written so well to the point that folks can recognize their own lives in that situation and so everybody has an opinion about it because they've been through it in some way or another and that is good art frankly Mm -hmm. rupaul's drag race another show we've been watching since the beginning this everything has changed right like the the world around drag race has changed they've changed networks wait did you did you see that article which one oh the fracking (laughs) no no not that (laughs) not that Fracking? No, we cannot steal intellectual property from Bob and Peppermint. But uh, the show has been on for 12 seasons. RuPaul's brand has changed. The show has gotten exponentially more exposure. It's metastasized. Right. So, like, the show is oversaturated now. Well, you say oversaturated. I say metastasized. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think it's cancerous. I think it's still generally a... Well, I don't know if I... Yes, I think it's still a force for good, but... I'm saying it's spread like cancer. I'm not saying it's cancerous. (laughs) So it could be like a benign... It could. Is that a thing? Like... A benign, fast-moving... Metastasis. I don't know. Anyway, you you get the meaning of what I'm saying. Recently, RuPaul's, I would say, public image has changed a little. He's been opening himself up to criticism more about transphobia... Has he, though? He, ha- he well, intentionally has opened himself up to criticisms of transphobia because oh. he said that this is the Drag Olympics and that trans women have an unfair advantage. I totally yes. misheard you. I thought oh, you were okay. saying he opened himself up as in welcomed the criticism. No, no. Uh, the fracking thing. The, the slick reveal that he and his partner own a ranch in Wyoming, Wyoming and sell... <laughs> <laughs> and just dropped this little tidbit that he sells 
drilling rights to oil companies. So he's a fracker. <laughs> it's too much. Oh my God, it's too much. And then like a lot of the, the self-help stuff that comes off as really like bootstraps, Republican rugged individualism that he and Michelle propagate on the mm. podcast. And then this so, season we have multiple queens who have multiple issues. The chief of them being well, in the final four, most likely, mm. and having had to be heavily edited out of the season because they're a catfisher and uh, an alleged sexual abuser. Oh my God. The, so this has changed the season. I imagine that RuPaul has had Sherry Pie killed, <laughs> right? Because the reveals before the season even debuted about Sherry Pie's catfishing of coercing people to do sexual acts on camera by lying to them. This shit is crazy. It's a criminal offense. And they have had to kind of excise someone who was clearly very successful during the filming of the season. But see, had they not been so blind to the lack of varied talent, the lack of versatility in Ms. Pie then they wouldn't have found themselves so deep in the situation because to my mind, having watched the season, she don't deserve to be in the top four. And you could make the argument, I guess, that that's because the show has been so heavily edited to remove her right. from certain no things idea. that we don't know. But what I do know is that every runway, I've seen the same face. I've seen the same old lady. Mm. I've seen the same old shtick. And it's a shtick that we've seen on previous seasons. As Coco Montre said, that's the same makeup you've been running down the runway every week. I don't see anything original about it, personally. Yeah, the Catherine Hepburn thing, making fun of the Tremors, was not funny, not cute. I don't get it. Anyway, I'm just saying maybe they have themselves to blame as well, a little bit in the situation. But what is the point here you want to make about Drag Race? Oh, the point is, like, there's still a lot of fun to be had with it, despite all the hang-ups, despite the virulent racism amongst drag race stands mm -hmm. online there's as far as like the text like the canon of drag race there's still a lot of fun and enjoyment to be had from watching it every week and it's also like giving these great artists a huge platform and it's bringing a lot of joy to a lot of people mm -hmm. i am pleased that i've seen such great talent still in yes in season like 12. this top five minus sherry this top five is so talented. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. Jada Essence Hall. Has there ever been a queen who's done it all on the runway right? like she has? Mm -hmm. And by done it all, I mean not had stuff purchased, not had <laughs> stuff made for her, not well, we don't fallen know. by the wayside because of a lack of resources or, or privilege. You know, like she's done everything with mm. what she's got and she can do it all. Is she the most versatile when it comes to thinking on her feet and being a comedy queen and and performing in acting challenges? Maybe not. I mean, she's not Bianca, but like she's no slouch. No, I think we just gave away who we want to win. Right. Okay, I guess now we're on to the white people shows. <laughs> I think Hollywood was a white people show. Oh, okay. I think Normal People is the poster child for white people shows. Yes. Okay, The Good Fight is actually set in a black-owned law firm, so it's not really a white people show, but it's a spinoff of The Good Wife. If you have not seen The Good Fight, I really encourage you to seek it out, because I think it's the only series that captures the absurdity 
of right now, and it has done so from the first season. It is not your typical liberal resistance show. Especially since it doesn't feel like it's reactionary while you're watching it. It feels like it's predictive. Right. Which is so bizarre. Because it is very of the moment. Like, it is It is very specific to this time that we're living through as far as the Trump uh, experience, I guess. But it, it almost seems... It's not like a liberal activist show because it recognizes the absurd of what we're living. It looks into the abyss and laughs, which I find very liberating and also a little bit scary. I, all I know is I look forward to it every Thursday night. Mm-hmm. I do not expect to be fed the same thing. I don't expect it to be rote. I don't expect it to be unoriginal. I expect whimsy. I expect wit. <laughs> I expect emotions. I expect dealing with the the seriousness of the current situation with a bit of levity, which I mm. appreciate. What I do not appreciate, and it's unfortunate, due to the uh, coronavirus, is that we're only going to get seven episodes this season. It will end in two weeks. What? I just Seriously? read that before mm. recording. Due to production being halted, instead of 10 episodes, they will wrap it after seven episodes. But they have been renewed for a fifth season. We just flew through Upload, which is an Amazon Prime series, which is clearly heavily influenced by The Good Place. Mm-hmm. It imagines a sort of virtual afterlife where the privileged can upload a digital version of themselves to live on. Like your consciousness lives on. Uh, it's kind of like Black Mirror, if Black Mirror were funny. <laughs> so I, don't, I won't go too far Black into Mirror it. Black Mirror is a little bit different because it's like a, what do you call it, serialized? Yes, it's an anthology, but it is very much about like dystopian future and technology and social media and all of that. But it's it's was a really enjoyable watch. And it gestures toward radical politics. doesn't quite get there, but it, you know, it plays with a lot of interesting ideas. I was surprised to learn that Stephen Amell and Robbie Amell were not brothers. I just assumed they were. Yeah. They are seven years apart, and they are first cousins. There had to be, like, brothers and sisters marrying brothers and sisters there. I. That's all I will hear of it. Because they look like twins. I will not engage with that. <laughs> I, <laughs> I will not. It's not incest. What are you doing? <laughs> Never have I ever... I shall start by saying that when I learned that there was a television show narrated by John McEnroe, I... You said, absolutely not. I said, never will I ever watch that show. And it was actually very enjoyable. It was a reprieve. It was a delight. Was it the greatest thing ever on TV? No. But if you need a 30-minute comedy where we get to have an Indian family play... A role that white people always get to play then <laughs> right. yes i heard a critique that the the main character was annoying and it's kind of subjective it is but also like white people get to be annoying all the time <laughs> like let this indian girl be annoying also 16 year olds are annoying yeah period so like <laughs> series that ended During the time of Corona, we've had three shows that, between the two of us, we've watched from start to finish. Schitt's Creek, I started, quit after a couple episodes. You started, watched the whole thing. Watched it again. Made me watch it, encouraged me to watch it. Forever thankful you did. Homeland, we both watched up until like season five and then you quit. 
and then I kept going by myself. And How to Get Away with Murder, you stayed right up until Season 6, Episode 2. And mm-hmm. then you decided no mass. You know what? I did this with Glee and Scandal. I quit in the final season. And I don't lose sleep. It's fine. I'm, I'm you so okay sleep, with... You don't lose sleep, but you're still coming to me the day after like, so how was it? What happened? <laughs> Who's dead? Who's alive? <laughs> like, what's going on? I saw this. What does that mean? Is yeah. it true? So was why, I right? Why can't you tell me? Because I wanted to share this experience with you, James. And you said, fuck that life. Mm-hmm. Shit's Creek. I mean, we've talked about this on the show a lot, or regular show a lot. This here we will just reiterate to people if somehow you missed the cultural phenomenon that's erupted with this show in the last year. It's been around, but in the last year, folks have really caught on and... And the fact that the, the the finale dovetailed with everything that's been going on, it gave folks time to catch up with it as well. If you haven't yet watched it, it's a 10 out of 10 recommend. First season is a bit, it's a bit rough in spots. You may not want to continue like I experienced when I first gave it a go, but seasons, what, four and five? Exceptional. And I'm actually, I'm glad that it ended when it did because it, became a phenomenon very very late in its run and so it was able to avoid catering to fan service or getting corny it it still felt like very true to the the essence of the series it's one of those shows that built its own universe and it built a, a set of characters in a world that you ended up really caring about like mary tyler moore or parks and rec or cheers it like in that sort of vein and so you ended up caring very much about what happened to the characters it wasn't just a endless run of jokes Mm -hmm. i feel like you've said those exact same thing Mm. multiple times before fine it bears repeating (laughs) you can decide if you want to keep it when you're editing homeland a unique revival and it benefited from the fact that showtime does not know when to cancel shows (laughs) they have a history of Shows going on way too long. Dexter, Nurse Jackie. Shameless. Shameless. If you're making even the slightest profit for Showtime, they will keep you going. But Homeland got seriously bad at about, like, what, season three into four with the the wrapping up of the whole Brody thing. And then coming back from that, it was uneven. But in the last few seasons, and especially the final season, Homeland achieved a resurrection, a renaissance that I did not think was in store for them. And I'm happy that I watched to the end because the finale, probably the best drama finale I've ever seen. No, I've never watched The Sopranos series Mm. finale. Can't opine on that. I'm talking about me. I thought it was that good. And then last night, I watched the How to Get Away with Murder finale. You had abandoned ship. And so starting, I think, Sunday night, I said, well, if I watch three episodes per night, Once you're sleeping, I can get to the finale on Thursday and watch it with everybody else. And I was done by Tuesday. (laughs) I enjoyed it. I really did. Will it ever be the greatest thing you've watched on TV? No. Was I absolutely frustrated with the show when you stopped watching? Yes. But I think they brought the plane into the hangar pretty well. Okay. You had all these questions to me before we recorded. And so I'm going to do a Spitfire question and answer thing here with you you can guess what happened i'll tell you if you're right or not yes spoilers abound dead or alive michaela she's alive but miserable yes and i'm so happy she's miserable it's what she deserves laurel alive yes is there a caveat 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you hated her from the start. I think what we can talk about, use her to talk about here is the fact that she was probably, of all the kids, and it's easy to hate all of them, you hated her the most. Yeah, she was the worst. I hated Wes the most. Like, Wes was just the worst, one of my least favorite characters in the history of television. I hated that his neck was so tall that he just gazelled around, bouncing around the place. I just wanted to punch him. He looks like the the head that that queen wore on top of her head. Oh, Ornatia. Ornatia. He looks like a living Ornatia, and I could not deal with it. Nate. Nate. Uh, Nate's probably dead. Nate is Nate alive. Nate is cannon fodder. Nate really? is alive. Are you serious? had his character redeemed and i was not here for it i mean nate was never a bad guy he was just sort of like an annoying character he was self-righteous and i hated him okay but he was not violent and sociopathic like several of the people on the show in the last season oh really oh okay he stepped to annalise let me tell you yeah Mm -hmm. frank dead very dead (laughs) (laughs) asher dead also whole family dead very dead Mm. tricked you to think he was dying lived through that only to die 10 minutes later oh wow very very totally separate set of circumstances what about connor don't care no i think he's alive because i saw some like aged up version of him Mm. yeah him and uh what's his face ollie Oliver. oliver yes he's alive his annoying guilty conscience trying to overcome all the bad that he's done in his life and not feeling worthy of love or anything in his life meant that he had to suffer in prison. Mm-hmm. His thin lips are still alive. Yes. What about Bonnie? That woman has been through it. I hope she's just on a tropical island <laughs> living a stress-free life somewhere. Bonnie went through everything that any writer could throw at a character only to be used as a bait-and-switch plot device to kill her she's dead bonnie's dead oh my god bonnie wept in frank's arms only to then realize that she too was shot in the name of tony collette and this woman has been through too much gave annalise the opportunity of a lifetime to overact bonnie no bonnie stay with me bonnie don't go bonnie no (laughs) leave viola alone uh I think that that about covers it. Yes, that we, brings us to we, Annalise. We are we, we didn't we are made to believe that Annalise dies because throughout the entire sixth season they're showing us Annalise's funeral, and then at the mid-season finale we see Wes at Annalise's funeral, and we're like, what is going on? How it ends up playing out? Annalise is dead, but it's when she's probably ninety-five, like because, Cicely Tyson's age. Yeah, she looks like she's maybe seventy-five, but she's black. She's probably 95. And who we think is Wes at the funeral is really Laurel's aged up son, Christopher. And then I was like, okay, you know, this, you know, y'all did that. Y'all did that. It was cool. And then they end it with this corny ass, cheesy full circle moment where Christopher is riding up to Middleton, just like Wes rode up to Middleton on his, on his bicycle, gazelle head in the air, bright eyed, oh. ready for the first day of law school. Then he enters the classroom speaking a janky-ass Spanish accent because he clearly was taken off to some Spanish country or embedded in Spanish culture because of Laurel, his entire childhood. Yeah, And he is now teaching the class how to get away with murder 
inspired by his mentor. So it's Harry Potter. It's, the epilogue of Harry Potter, basically. I, I was disgusted by that. <laughs> okay. You know, I'm really okay with skipping the final season. I've, I'm at peace with it. Whatever. <laughs> Are you ready for Body and Soul? Yes, Body, Serve, and Soul. Body and Soul. Obviously, the Anita Baker song mm-hmm. is the inspiration. But a quick preamble is that I have always wanted to solicit questions for like an advice column. It, it must be my ego convincing me that I would be good at this or at least interested. Likely so. Yeah. But what we did is we asked for people to submit questions anonymously or or with their own name. We're not going to reveal anyone's name. This is Some of these are quite serious. If you gave us a pseudonym, we will use that. If not, we will make one up. I presume you'll recognize your own question. Right. So thank you, everyone, for submitting questions. And thank you for trusting us with with some of this content. It's a lot. Our first question is from Guilt Ridden in California. Guilt Ridden tells us, Since the onset of the pandemic, we have been sheltering in place, me being on furlough from work, and my significant other being an essential worker, working from home and also out in the field. Here's the issue. Each day, my significant other feels the need to give me a list of projects to complete, which I continue to do, but I'm torn between feeling guilty about not working at my job, trying to keep the anxiety at bay, and trying to figure out how to let my significant other know that the daily to-do list is getting old, without sounding lazy and confrontational. Which it may be, and the thought of which also makes me feel guilty. What am I to do? On a personal note, I can relate in some sense, because I guess I too am on furlough, I guess would be Mm. the technical term. I still have a job when it opens back up. Very early on, you'd be working from home and you'd come downstairs or whatever, and I'd be sitting on the couch for like two hours in a row playing a cricket video game. And you'd be like, don't you got some jumping jacks to do or something? Because I'd be doing jumping jacks mm. to like, you know, get some activity in. And I'd be like, listen, bitch, like I need you to be at work and leave me the fuck alone. Like this is my time. Right. And I th- so I think we moved past that with us. All of us are facing a situation that we have never had to deal with before. And we're we're kind of approaching it in the best way that we can. So... The first thing I will say is give yourself the grace to acknowledge that your feelings are valid Mm -hmm. and normal. And also give your partner that same grace, right? Like give him or her the kindness that whatever they are feeling, whatever pressures they're feeling of having to go to work, feeling like they need to give you a list of tasks to accomplish while you're not at work. We don't know if guilt-ridden spouse is doing this out of the goodness of their heart to, you know, keep mm-hmm. guilt-ridden occupied. Right. You know, maybe as, a, they, as a kindness. Maybe, maybe they, they feel you need something to do. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they feel so stressed at their job and they feel kind of useless at home. Important to consider here, too, is just how much we are taught from a young age that our, that our self-worth is wrapped up in the jobs that we do, in the things that we do for money. And so... It's difficult in facing this unprecedented situation where you're off work, you cannot work even though you want to work, that you don't 
allow yourself to feel less than or worthless mm-hmm. because you're not bringing in any money. You know, that right. that's a difficult thing to add to a relationship, which relationships are already fraught. They're minefields to begin with. Right. No matter how long you've been together, if this is a new experience for you, if you're stuck at home when you really would prefer to be at work, if you're feeling anxiety for any number of valid reasons that a lot of us are feeling right now, how do you sort of communicate with your partner and tell them this is too much? Like this is not, you know, this is not working for me right now. This to-do list is overwhelming me. And I think the solution to so many of these things is communication, but you have to be able to communicate in a in a way that the other person will accept. Mm-hmm. It's important, I think, in this situation to get to the root of the to-do list. What is the purpose behind it? Perhaps guilt-ridden, you already know what the reason is. Mm. But getting that out in the open and that being an entryway to talk about the situation, say, well, hey, like, you know, I appreciate being, having things to do. Uh, Maybe you can tell me, like, why you went about doing this in the first place and then have that be the the opening up to the conversation to then say well you know some days this works really well for me some days i wake i wake up and i'm ready to go and then other days it's a little bit more difficult maybe i i want to have a little bit more leeway to just get through it and i understand that this may be difficult to accept because you don't have that choice right. in this situation but I, too, I'm just trying to find a way to get through it and have us still be able to to be there for each other moving forward. And so maybe instead of a to-do list, is there something else project-wise that you wanted to do or think is good for me to be able to branch out and do something else in this time? Have a conversation of what you think your life together looks like going forward rather than trying to micromanage the day-to-day getting through this unforeseen Mm -hmm. time. Also, and I hope this is not the case, but if it is the case that this to-do list is about earning your keep, that is a whole nother can of worms that, for me, would not be tenable. Not Mm -hmm. to pass judgment on folks here, but I, I really hope that that's not the situation. And if it's not, then there's absolutely a way to work this through. I think if you talk and you strategize ways that you can make life easier for your partner who's an essential worker by doing things that don't exacerbate your anxiety, like that's that's the place to start, right? It's just talking and addressing it in a way that is understanding and empathetic to what your partner is dealing with and being honest about what you are feeling as well. This is good, getting you on record saying all these things so I can play them <laughs> back to you later on. Right. Question number two from Trivial Pursuit. When a friendship inexorably ends, where there's been no drama or words, but you have a few thoughts about why it may have ended, is it better to just let it go? Or should you confront the friend to confirm the reasons? This actually has a lot to do with our discussion about insecure, Mm -hmm. (laughs) about friendships ending. And many times that's natural and... People grow apart, people move locations. Like you and I have experienced this a lot because we made 
friendships in high school and college, and we both live in different places, different countries, where we experience both of those things. So friendships have, have drifted apart. And, and for the relationships that are really important, you've kept in touch. And there's some, some measure of sadness in relationships that you wanted to maintain but didn't. Mm-hmm. Right? So when you ask, is it better to let it go or should you confront that person to confirm the reasons... I think you have to think about who are you serving if you confront that person? Is it is it because you need closure? Is it because you feel that you're right or that you feel that you have been wronged or or maybe you feel that you have behaved poorly? Like is it if confronting that person will get you to a place where you both feel better, then maybe that is the answer. But at the same time like some friendships don't last your entire lives and that's also okay like you played an important role for each Mm. other at that time counter argument you have this discussion with this friend and maybe you're both not 100 percent honest with each other or maybe you both are and it still doesn't bring you closer to then continue the friendship long term it doesn't guarantee that i've always found that there the with the folks that i'm really close with there are Sometimes years that we can go without speaking, but if I text, I get it back right away. Or if we reconnect in spurts, it's great. And then there's no resentment when it's not, you know, like, yeah, there it's not a one size fits all garment for all relationships. Mm. And I think you do run the risk of opening up a can of worms that you may both not be ready or willing to deal with. That's one of the drawbacks. You have to ask yourself, is it worth it? Is it worth the worst case scenario? Like, if you think, you, you say that you, you think you know what the reasons are, are those reasons because you did something wrong? Because if they are, then you should have already have apologized or addressed that situation. And if it's the other way around, if they've done something to you, you haven't said something about it, to this day like there's so much unspoken yeah. at play here that that it's it's tough it's it's not about not being real you right know what like I mean? being real can can also be cruel you don't have to be real at all moment you don't have to be honest with everybody at every moment i have been in situations where you know i've had relationships where i felt like i i acted badly and i hurt that other person like in friendships and I see that they have moved on and they have a a meaningful life and we don't see each other anymore. And maybe it's okay that I don't address that with that person because like, why? Why dredge up those memories? Like that person has clearly moved on. By addressing it, I'm I'm sort of assuaging my own guilt about the situation. It'll make me feel better, but it might not make them feel better. When a friendship has been allowed to lapse... Because that's really what happens. Mm. You may both be guilty of it. It could be one person ignoring the other. But due to inaction, a friendship has been allowed to lapse. And during that time, so much has happened that you are not privy to in that person's life. What is the entitlement to that passage of time is what I grapple with at Mm. this point. We have grown apart. I'm, I'm now trying to claw that back. I know there's a school of thought where people say, well, if somebody's that important to you, then you make sure that you keep them in your life. Well, why didn't I do that this entire time? 
there must be a there is a reason why that has happened and it doesn't necessarily mean it's sinister or or something untoward happened it it's just the passage of time and people drifting apart and sometimes that's okay it's a difficult thing to grapple with whether you are actually in fact okay with that and being able to let it go if you can sometimes that is that is the best way to go if they are to return to you they will yeah and you just have to be willing to not be holding grudges at that point if you can be at a point where say this person contacts you in a year and wants to be part of your life vice versa again and you can welcome them back into your life without holding that grudge then you don't need to reach out and have this conversation now if you have that level of comfort in the the foundation of your friendship but if you feel that something is fractured and you want it to be mended and you want them back in your life again without you holding grudges then maybe a calm conversation could be had at this point. Yeah. I mean, like personally, my 20s and 30s have been about letting go of those resentments because I know that I have made mistakes. I have let people down and vice versa. You know, we're not perfect. Just like just because a friendship ends doesn't mean that that person wasn't worthwhile or that you don't care about them. It's just that maybe you made mistakes, they made mistakes, your life's trended in different directions. Like, that's life. I keep coming back to this point, or should you confront the friend to confirm the reason? Mm -hmm. So if you need to confirm the reason for yourself, I I think that's the wrong reason. Agreed. Now, throughout this exercise, keep in mind that Jonathan and I are not mental health professionals. We're not experts. No. But we are approaching each question with empathy and with a lot of thought. Ideally, holding a mirror up to you. So... What we say may not be entirely surprising, right? But like a lot of times people just need to hear it from somebody else. That's my belief. But this is not professional advice. You're trying to cover your, cover your ass right now. Well, and also, you know, make sure people know that I'm not so arrogant to believe that like I know what's best for anyone. Carry on. Okay. So question three is from Lemon Pie. I'm a gay male, almost 40 now. And since I started dating and having sex around 19 to 20 years old, it has always been either sex or feelings. I would fall in love with guys, but couldn't really be attracted physically or enjoy sex with them. The sex would happen with one night stands or hookups or friends with benefits that I would meet a few times, but I wouldn't fall in love with those people. And I can't seem to understand why. I don't think it's a a formula or an equation that's working against you exclusively lemon pie or meaning that it's it's an absolute situation that this is always going to be the case for you it's normal to be attracted to certain personality types certain personality traits and also find certain physical attributes appealing you don't always find all those things in one person now if you're sitting here telling me that you were in love with somebody like matt bomer and didn't want to have sex with him, (laughs) Mm. then maybe there's something else going on here. But unless there's something psychological going on, then it seems to me that it's more kind of luck of the draw. I also think that queer people, a lot of us, like our childhoods did a number on us. There is shame around sexuality that we are still unpacking, that we're still discovering well into adulthood that you don't think is there that you feel that you've worked out completely. And I would wonder if, like, have you grappled with all of it? Like, is there something there 
that is preventing you from becoming intimate with your sexual partners? You know, is there some kind of shame is maybe just a lack of practice, you know, like straight people get to get to rehearse romance so many times, like from when they're kids, right? From when they're little kids, toddlers are quote unquote flirting. So all these rehearsals of heteronormativity happen for straight people. For gay people, we are forging our own path. And especially if you're, you know, almost 40, you didn't come of age in an extremely enlightened time. Is it possible that you didn't practice those those sort of predetermined romantic relationships? We didn't know what love and sex and relationships were supposed to look like or feel like. I see your point. I wonder if there's an added baggage that comes along with being in love with somebody or liking somebody that portends the threat of commitment Mm. that then becomes unconsciously uh, a boner kill. Sure. That maybe seems too conventional or like you have to give too much of yourself. Because relationships are not, they're not, they're not glamorous. They're not easy. They're a lot of work. Yes. Having sex with the same person for the rest of your life or however long you choose to be with that person is not glamorous. Right. Like the, the erotic kind of lives in this place of risk, of mystery, of rediscovery, right? Like that's where sex and eroticism exist. And normality can sort of pound that down. <laughs> pound, you say. <laughs> <laughs> Has there ever been a case where you've hooked up with somebody, found them hot, then fell in love with them, then couldn't have sex with them? Yeah, I think that's what I want to know. Have you had a one-night stand with someone, caught feelings, and then kind of immediately cut it off? And why? Did you lose attraction and why? And maybe for a potential partner, the conversation needs to be, I am a little bit trepidatious about committing, or I don't believe in monogamy, or I, I see relationships as different and more expansive than other people see it. And maybe that's like a conversation that you need to have. I don't have an answer for this one. You're just going to have to, to this work a, this one out. a tough out. one. I think a lot of talking can help with this one. Perhaps therapy? Yeah. I mean, that's my recommendation for literally anyone. Our next question is from Dorothy's Bornack. My drive ensured I followed all the rules. I made sure I went to the right schools. I got scholarships so finances would not hold me back. I got the right job, dated the right people, and I'm now perceived as a success story. Except I have no interest in the work I do. I secretly sleep with both men and women and have never felt more alone. I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunities and good fortune I've had, but I feel something eating away at me. All my life, I've maintained the separation of my personas by telling myself that what I do in my personal life is no one's business, and I don't owe anyone an explanation for what I do. I've been doing it for so long, I would never dream of breaking up the public persona, the one everyone knows and loves. I'm not sure if there's a question in all this, but at what point is it okay to just be me? What you do in your personal life is technically no one's business, mm -hmm. you asked. And you don't technically own anyone an explanation for what you do in your personal life. But that in itself sets you up to be isolated from folks. Mm -hmm. So when you, know, when you say that, is that lonely? Well, it is. The, right. Dorothy is saying that she's never been more lonely than she is right now mm -hmm. because of it. So, of course, you don't, you don't 
have to explain yourself to anyone, but you may have created this world for yourself that is really separate from other people. You know, opening up to people is terrifying, but kind of necessary to, to build this community around yourself based on who you actually are. Sometimes I think there's a disconnect between how we think others will view us and how they actually view us. And one of the the real tragedies of the closet is that the deeper you get into it and stay into it, the less clarity and distinction there is being able to tell between the two. You start to create all these ideas about what it actually is like that may not be reality. And so what you need to decide if your project and desire to rectify this loneliness, what you need to assess is, am I safe physically, emotionally, mentally, if I do try and take steps out of this situation? Because I think we can identify between us here that the solution to this loneliness is taking baby steps out of the closet, not necessarily bursting right through, you know, but dipping your toe in that water to see what it's like. Dorothy says, I've been doing it so long, I would never dream of breaking up the public persona. Are those two things mutually exclusive? It's really difficult to assess the risk, like you said, when you have been hiding things for a long time, because a lot of us will overestimate the negative reaction that will happen if you're honest. And so much of this is culturally informed. It's informed by your socioeconomic status, by your family, by your religion. I don't know how By the country you live in. So like that has to be an educated guess from you because we don't know how the people close to you will react. And coming out in the culture that we came of age in, that was the answer for us. But it's not necessarily the answer for everyone. It's not necessarily safe for everyone. And your coming out is more complicated, right? Because it's also kind of a an early, maybe quarter-life, midlife crisis. Finally, that you made all the right decisions. You're being Dorothy. Yes. Me. Yes. Okay. Sorry, Dorothy. All the, all the correct decisions about the schools you went to, the job you got, the sort of relationships that you had, but you're finding yourself unfulfilled. And like... <sighs> So many of us in our early 30s can relate to that completely. And it is really, it can be a fundamental and existential angst when you do, when that hits, when you realize that. I mean, for myself, like, I couldn't live with it. Like, I, I needed to, to find a way to, to understand it, to work through it. Like, I couldn't let that be my life. My advice would be to identify what those baby steps are that you can take. Those things that are absolutely 100% safe for you. Find somebody on social media. Find somebody in a chat room. Find somebody who is a stranger. And bit by bit, dip your toe into those coming out waters. If that is indeed something you're willing to do. See how it goes. I would never recommend anybody coming out when they're not ready even though most of us do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I always I always tell folks and we as resident gay ex- experts <laughs> having been <laughs> out for a while you know younger gays always ask us this. You know and people always ask us this. And I always 
I always tell folks to minimize risk as much as possible and be prepared for worst case scenarios. And if you can be prepared and are okay with those, then then you have your answer. Then it just becomes a matter of like emotional readiness. Mm -hmm. But there's more involved than just being emotionally ready. For a lot of queer people, they feel that they need to kind of establish this community of support before coming out. A lot of us don't have the luxury to do that. It was something about this question that really stuck out to me is that you mentioned, I would never dream of breaking up the public persona, the one everyone knows and loves. Are you sure that everyone wouldn't love the the real you that that's hiding? Like you, Jonathan said, reach out to, to people you may not know in your real life. Be sort of become that person you feel is your more authentic self and see if they love that person, right? Like don't be convinced that the people in your life won't won't accept and understand the authentic version of you. Question five is from Celine. Celine says, I'm wondering how one becomes more confident in expressing their views on social media. I'd like to think I'm a competent person who is good at what I do, but sharing my work or engaging in discussions on Twitter is very anxiety provoking for me. I think a million times before tweeting and I'm always rather nervous that I might say something stupid. I really envy people who are able to engage confidently and share their opinions. I've been taking baby steps on this front by tweeting a little bit instead of just lurking slash liking, but I'd love to have your thoughts. First, I want to congratulate you, Celine, for having the, the good sense to second guess yourself. I think sometimes folks take that as a weakness, but I see it as a great strength and a sign of good character. Because everybody's mm-hmm. out here wiling out in these social media streets, haphazard, just shooting all directions, trying to find a hit. <laughs> and taking all prisoners, not caring who is just a bystander caught in the, the crossfire. And especially in these times, I find that we have to be exceedingly careful in in what we say, not as a result of a so-called PC culture, but as a way of of being kind to each other. Mm-hmm. This is such a great question. I love this question because, you know, you and I have obviously used this platform to share our opinions freely. It has not always been fun. The experience has been overwhelmingly positive, but not exclusively positive, you know, we have dealt with trolls and shit like that. Mm. Um, that comes with the territory. And sometimes I feel maybe we have been too outspoken or too forceful. And, and other times we have fallen back because we were worried about the criticism. Sometimes we've been wrong. Sometimes right? we've made bad decisions. Sometimes we've been straight up trash. Yeah. I mean, my own personal approach to social media ever since Trump was elected was frequently to act impulsively and then dial it back. <laughs> so I don't recommend my approach. You, you know, the quality that you're showing right now is being honest about what you don't know, but I would hate to lose a voice because you were afraid to share your your feelings, your experience, your knowledge, your insight. People are going to disagree every once in a while. The block button is your friend. It is not a sign of weakness to block someone. You don't owe anyone 
anything on social media, you don't know these people. Being blocked by someone is not a, a badge of honor. I know some people treat it that way, but if you need to block, block. Mm -hmm. And if you encounter an experience that is distressing, which can happen, get yourself out of it, mitigate it as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Like you don't need to save face. There's a difference between being on Twitter and this sounds terrible and so full of it, but producing content, putting your thoughts out there, writing your own tweets, as opposed to just retweeting and replying to tweets. Because you'll see a lot of accounts out there, you only see like five tweets, but they have 10,000 tweets because they're mm -hmm. all replies. And I think maybe this is somewhere in the vicinity of what Celine is talking about, branching out from that. And my advice would be to always think twice about something before you tweet it. There's nothing wrong with that. If you are enraged about something, maybe take a moment before you send the tweet button. Always think about whether you're punching up or punching down. That's very important. You can say the same thing to two different people, but if you're punching up, it has a lot more utility and public good that can come from it rather than punching down at somebody. Mm. And if you're just starting out, that is something that you will learn because you're almost always punching up when you're starting. But at the same time, you don't want to be a troll. Right. Just punching up, punching up for likes and clicks. And so my advice would be to figure out what your authenticity is on a social media platform. What are the things that are important to you? What are the things that you are comfortable talking about? What are the things that you know and trust for yourself to be true? Have those as your core social media mm -hmm. values that, you know, you are confident in and maybe not stray from those for a while. <laughs> you know, like talk about the things that you know to start and be kind to people. And I mean, if, you, if you can't be kind, if they're not showing you kindness, just say nothing or block. For Celine, the problem really seems more to be with confidence. So I don't, I don't think kindness would be an issue. But... If you engage with people and you find that they're unnecessarily mean, fuck them. Stop engaging, <laughs> right? Like, you don't owe social media accounts anything. Yeah, but part, find of, your... part of lacking a confidence is knowing what has happened to other people and knowing how social media works. Yeah. That's yeah. part of the fear in putting yourself and your thoughts out there because of how mm. it will be received. Right. But yes, fuck the trolls. <laughs> And yes, I absolutely understand that it's anxiety-provoking to, to be on a website like Twitter. Yeah, yeah. You are not alone in feeling that way, Celine. And if we project confidence in doing it or a comfortability in doing it, it's solely from practice. Yeah. We still do not feel totally comfortable or are having a firm grip on, on anything that we do. We are lucky that we have each other to bounce our ideas off of and to to filter our thoughts before they go public <laughs> there's so many times mm -hmm. when i'll i'll come and say to you hey read this can i tweet this and vice versa and that's that's one way that we can mitigate having this fear because we have that that personal filter but at the same oh. time you will say something stupid from time to time like that's not something mm -hmm. you can avoid yeah and if you're someone who is thinking this hard about it you're probably someone who's generally thoughtful and considered just go for it trust your gut dip your toe in on that note an, an episode about quarantainment friendship television 
our fears and worries, we have come to the end. Be kind to yourself. Trust that your emotions are valid. That's my advice going forward in this time and always. Uh, I don't know if I agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say that you're right all the time, but your feelings are real. Our jobs right now are to get through this. Yes. Is to not beat up on ourselves. So that is my parting thought. If you are inclined to Karenize, you should decarenize yourself from this right. period. We said that we we do not ascribe to this idea that you need to be making the most of quarantine. But if you need to decarenize, this is something you absolutely should do in quarantine. Thanks for listening. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. We are at the Body Serve on both Twitter and Instagram. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Overcast, all those. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.